Welcome to another episode of the How to Save the World podcast, where we take a deep intellectual dive into the academic research and behavioral science of what really gets people to take a pro-environmental action and behavior. I'm your host, Katie Patrick. I'm an environmental engineer and a designer based in Silicon Valley, California, and I'm the author of How to Save the World and Zero Wasteify. If you haven't already, sign up to my website at katiepatrick.com to get more free resources about how you can apply gamification and behavior design to your environmental cause. Hey, hey, welcome back to part two of our Nerd Out with the Journal of Environmental Psychology, volume 79. And when I say deep nerding out, I mean literally deep, or what I actually mean is late. It's actually almost midnight right now. And I'm so psyched to finish this episode and go through these papers. I'm amazed that I didn't think to do this earlier. Just jumping through these abstracts, it's so much faster. I can do it on my own. It's fun. And I can get these episodes out really quickly and cover a more diverse range of research that's presented in this academic journal. Next paper is titled, When and How Pro-Environmental Attitudes Turn into Behavior, the Role of Costs, Benefits, and Self-Control. This one's looking into the attitude or the value behavior gap, which is that even though everybody says they care about the planet and we all want to save the trees and the whales and the seas, when you actually look at people's behaviors, their behaviors are much less sustainable than their attitudes. And one school of thought is that environmental attitudes and how much you know about the environment and how much you care about it has almost no relationship with your behavior, that you can come in as a behavioral scientist and you can behaviorally intervene in the environment in people's lives using all of these nudge techniques and get people to do eco-friendly things whether they care about the environment or not it's just not relevant and then there's another school of thought that shows that people's attitude and emotional disposition and concern really do drive and are at the core of environmental behaviors and I think both are true depending on how you're studying it and what you're looking at and how you're flying it up. And this study wants to know how much having self-control plays into that dichotomy between how much you care or you know about the environment affects your behavior. For example, you might really, really care about the planet, but if you don't have a trait of personal self-control, you're not going to be able to do the behaviors that are sometimes a little bit more effortful or a little bit more difficult. For example, like littering, like it's easier to litter than to carry the trash with you. If you had absolutely no self-control, you might just litter even though you don't believe in littering. I gotta say, personally, I do a lot of environmental behaviors that I don't agree with because in the moment I'm exhausted, I'm parenting, and I got no self-control going on, and I flake out on my value system. And what this study says is that having a pro-environmental attitude is quite predictive of what kind of behavior you engage in, which makes sense, right? If you care about the planet and you're educated about it, it makes sense that you do more eco-friendly behaviors. But the one moderating effect that really changes that is that what kind of personal cost does it come to you at? Some eco-friendly behaviors are really easy and the whole world and the environment is designed to help you with those behaviors and some of them are really difficult and they're all on a different scale. So as the environmental behaviors become more difficult, then your 
environmental values are not strong enough to get you to do them anyway. Like, would you ride your bike in the rain and in the cold? That's a kind of a, a good example just for an environmental value because the, the cost and the difficulty to you is more. Would you spend $20,000 on an electric car when you could get a petroleum-based car for $5,000? That extra cost of that $15,000, for somebody where $15,000 is a lot of money for them, it's a literal cost, not just a behavioral or, or a comfort cost. Our environmental values just aren't that powerful with that stuff. But this other dimension of self-control is... And it comes into also this concept of long-term thinking. And people who are able to think in terms of long-term outcomes are able to exert more self-control, also called delayed gratification, and make their long-term goals come true. So basically, if you're the type of person that is able to harness more self-control, you'll be better at having your behavior live in line with your value system. So you'll fall into the value action gap less often than people who have low self-control. So what this means is that obviously we want environmental behaviors to be easy, to be designed into the system and to not come at these high costs. So we don't fall into the value action gap. However, we're not there yet. We have to get there. And on the road to getting there, we need to ask people to do stuff. Looking at it through this lens, maybe getting people to care more about the planet or be more environmentally conscious is not necessarily the best avenue to go with people. Perhaps looking at the problem through the lens of self-control and trying to figure out how do we help people develop more self-control as opposed to just getting them to be more greeny might tap into that causal mechanism of what gets people to take action. The study doesn't go into how we can improve people's self-control, but it does raise the question to get us to start thinking about it, to get us to start thinking about it as a mechanism when we're designing labeling systems, carbon disclosure systems, nudge techniques, government policy, that this psychological mechanism of self-control is something that we need to consider when we're designing up these systems and programs. Next paper is titled Knowledge, Perceived Potential and Trust as Determinants of Low and High Impact Pro-Environmental Behaviors. So let's break this down a bit. One, knowledge. How much do you know about the climate impact of the different actions and the products around you? One way to get people to do stuff. Two, perceived potential. What type of potential will your action have? And three, trust. How much do you trust the scientist that is giving you the information? The study tested these three different types of communication or psychological styles or preferences on several different environmental behaviors, one including switching to a sustainable diet and installing energy-efficient light bulbs. Don't sure climate activists hate the light bulbs. The truth is now that LED lights, the new LED lights are super energy efficient. So it's kind of true that switching off the lights now they're you know really, really energy efficient and we have a lot more green electricity in the grid is not a big impact action. I got to agree with them that asking people to turn off the lights is going to have a small impact, but it also depends the style of the light bulb and where you are in the world. This study found that people being able to accurately predict the carbon intensity and the impact of different types of behaviors, like for example, a flight versus a meal versus a light bulb, 
So understanding the data and the impact will lead to people taking on more of the low impact actions and doing less of the high impact actions. Except what they also find from the study is that people have no idea. So people don't have a good sense of where the impact comes from all of these different behaviors, which is a big call to arms for us to do better communication and better disclosure of the embodied carbon of all things. What is the carbon of a flight? What is the carbon emissions of your car, of electricity? You know, so you know that LED lights aren't going to make a difference. Of all of the food, of your clothing, of a a new building that's being built. What it also says is that one of the most underestimated sources to have an impact is reducing meat consumption. And that is the thing that most people don't realize. They say that mitigation potential of reduced meat consumption remains one of the most underestimated potentials over time. I mean, I kind of thought everybody already knew this, but maybe the whole environmental movement has spent too long talking about the light bulbs. And it says here that environmental labels have been found to increase the frequency of low emission food purchases. And they are also strongly supported by individuals. I mean, that is what I would like to see. Carbon emissions per calorie on all of the different food products. And maybe if we can't do it product by product attached to a barcode, maybe we can do better rough categorizations at supermarkets like avocados, steak, sausages, frozen vegetables, and just have some more estimates. And then we'll be able to make better decisions and not just get pushed into these really crude categories of meat versus vegetarian or organic versus not organic. I'd really like to understand the actual food, the packaging, the cooking and to develop a true low carbon based diet that takes all of those three things into consideration whether it's organic or not and whether it's from an animal or not and it can be really simple it can just be the traffic light system red orange green is it high medium or low simple data communicated with a color And the study is saying that some sort of carbon labeling with a simple color approach like that probably really would work to both educate people so they understand what's high impact and what's low impact and that that type of education will lead to people adopting more climate-friendly behaviors. And again, they talk about the problems with overestimating certain environmentally friendly behaviors. And again, we have the issue with the light bulbs. If everybody thinks that switching the lights off, if they are super energy efficient, LED lights, it could potentially cause a moral licensing or a rebound effect where somebody thinks, oh, I did this green behavior. Now it's okay for me to go and eat a steak. I don't know if this is really the big problem that perhaps it's written about to be. I don't know if people really switch off their super efficient LED lights and then race out to the steak restaurant and do wheelies in their Hummer. But it gets talked about all the time in these papers. So I'm just telling you all what they say. Part of stopping this potential negative spillover or rebound effect would be to have really good carbon communications on all products. Because then you could just see what it was. You wouldn't look at some very inconsequential food or product and then use that to offset another one. People would be able to keep their behaviors in line with the actual data of the products around them. But then it says, of course, that maybe switching off the lights leads to positive spillover effects. Who knows what happens more, positive or negative spillover? 
It also says that women are more likely to engage in high-impact behaviors than men, but there's not really a difference for the low-impact behaviors. Women have been found to be more willing to reduce meat consumption than men in the Netherlands and in the US and in Switzerland. And women have been found to rate alternative meats or vegetarian type of meat alternatives as more environmentally friendly than men. They say that changing the gendered perceptions of meat consumption might be especially challenging given that men mostly associate meat consumption with positive aspects of taste and variety, whereas women associate meat consumption with more negative aspects like animal welfare and environmental impact. I've actually seen a whole bunch of studies talking about the attitudes of masculinity and, and meat and vegetarian diets in these, um, <laughs> in these studies. It's kind of funny, kind of a, a challenge to, to break down. And this study is all about summarizing that accurate perceptions about the mitigation potential of different behaviors really helps people. It's really hard to figure out now. Nobody really knows the difference between a, a car and a burger and a flight and a new pair of shoes. And so we need to communicate this better. They should probably have labels on them. They should probably also have a color system. When we're doing it for food, it's going to show there's a big climate problem with meat that is massively underestimated. Our next study is about social norms. Social norms are what we think everybody else is doing. It is titled The Effects of Perceived Social Norms on Support for Renewable Energy Transition, Moderation by National Culture and Environmental Risks. So this dives into what's called the perceived social norm, and it in general predicts the support of a renewable energy transition. So that means if people perceive that most of the people around them support a renewable energy transition. In my last podcast interview with Professor Jan Bulderdijk, he said that people generally perceive other people as being less environmentally oriented than they really are. People say things like, nobody really cares about the planet. Nobody's really into it. I mean, I care, but the people around me care a lot less than me. So we actually underestimate people around us, uh, support for environmental initiatives. But this is where we dive into that the human is a communal animal. Our attitudes are dependent on what we think everybody else around us is doing. The human is not an island. The human is a network of all the people around them. So communicating a campaign for renewable energy through the lens of letting people know that everybody around them supports this is a powerful and successful way to get people on board. We don't necessarily have to communicate environmental facts or emotional concern. We communicate that everybody else around you is into it. And as most of the people who have created the renewable energy and environmental industry and movement largely come from a background of science and engineering, it is natural for us to want to communicate the objective data, the scientific facts, to have scientific integrity. And the logic of that is meant to convince everybody else around us. But that's not the way most of the other type of humans work. If your job is making a campaign, designing a campaign, you're involved in any kind of campaign using the phrases like 81% of people in your community or in your country support this clean energy transition. That's the type of phrasing you want to use. And that is called a perceived social norm a perceived social norm to support a renewable energy transition. And so what you don't want to do, this is a mistake that I see happen a lot, that if you were working on a campaign, if you said something like, only 7% of people in our community support the clean energy transition, that is going to turn people away. 
because unconsciously we don't want to be in the small group that's being left out. And if you are working with a small group, say, for example, vegetarians, a lot of environmental behaviors, even electric vehicles are still, you know, in the 2 to 5% adoption rate, what you can use is something that's called a dynamic norm. So you can't say 80 or 90% of people are doing it, but what you can say is that an ever-increasing amount of people are doing it. It's called the dynamic norm, and you phrase the language to talk about the rate of change how quickly the growth rate is happening. It's kind of like saying there's this really quickly growing trend and you want to be with the trend and not the people that are falling away. Oh, the next study is so sweet. It is titled Gratitude to Nature, presenting a theory of its conceptualization, measurement and effects on pro-environmental behavior. Do you have a gratitude practice? People have been talking a lot about gratitude over the last few years. Gratitude med- meditation, gratitude is good for mental health. I think gratitude even has like a neuroscience thing. Like you can put somebody in a one of those brain scan machines, what do they call MRIs, and get them to do a gratitude practice and you see all this like good brain stuff happening. That's my, my super scientific neuroscience explanation. This study says that people can experience a distinct type of gratitude for nature. We can experience gratitude for all types of things, but what about gratitude for the earth, for all of the ecosystems around us? And through a practice of gratitude of nature, we can enhance our relationship to nature, our emotional connectedness to nature, which can then lead into more engagement in the pro-environmental behavior that we want to get people to adopt. This has got me thinking that I should record a guided meditation to practice gratitude for nature. I think in all the times I've practiced, tried to practice like a, a gratitude meditation or, or journal, you know, from the self-help literature, I don't think I ever put nature down. I always think of my Apple laptop. I'm grateful for Apple computers. I'm grateful to live in the USA. I'm grateful to be healthy. I'm grateful for my daughter. It's kind of like this top 10 list and I'm like, yeah, yeah, I already know. You know, I never put nature in there. I'm curious. I'm going to spend some time on this. This study found that gratitude to nature was associated with one's likelihood to perform pro-environmental behaviors, but also to donate to environmental causes. So when we're talking about environmental behavior, we're not just talking about switching off lights and EVs. We're also talking about how people support political campaigns, people's likelihood to write a letter to a politician. In this case, they're also adding in a donation to a cause. Or it could be how likely you are to try to influence people around you. This study has a lot of writing about the theory of gratitude and the theory of gratitude in relation to eco-psychology. It's worth probably having a read of if that sounds interesting interesting to you. But in conclusion, it makes me think of this concept of priming, which is getting people into a ecological state of mind before you ask them to do the behavior. In this dichotomy between, you know, do we really get people, do we really need to get people to care about the environment to do the action? This is how they fit together. If you prime someone, it can be priming through getting them to watch a video, getting them to have see an ad, to have some sort of ecological, environmental awareness, emotional or intellectual experience. And that primes their psychology. So when you hit them up with the behavior that you want them to do, clean energy, EV, writing a letter, standing up at a meeting, that behavior will will be much stickier with people that have had 
the, the priming experience and also with people who just hold a higher environmental value system. One of the ways that we could prime people or enhance their environmental attitude or their environmental belief system is to take people through nature gratitude exercises. A small meditation, a poem, a word. I don't know what it is. This is where we really need to tap into the creative community to we find these insights. And that's something that creative people and designers could come up with something really beautiful a really beautiful experience and event to help tap into that gratitude experience so when they're out in the world they are primed to do more stuff next paper is titled enhancing environmental resource sustainability by imagining oneself in the future this makes me think of this fairly well-known study that was done on looking at people aging into the future it's in all of the behavioral psychology and the nudge books and you would use this computer program and your face would get old over time so you could move this slider and see yourself when you're 40 50 60 70 80 and when people had this experience of seeing themselves in the future then they were more likely to invest savings into their retirement plans. So the theory was they developed this type of empathy and this connection with their future self. So they would do caring things for their future self that they may not want to do when they're only thinking about themselves in the now. How do we take that and apply that to the planet? As I've mentioned earlier, the the temporal or the time dimension of environmental behavior is a really big part of it because a lot of these things are on really long-ish, long-ish time frames that perhaps are not happening right in the moment. This experiment assessed whether environmentally sustainable behavior can be increased by imagining oneself in the future. They got their group of participants and put them through three different experiments. The control was to imagine, draw, and describe a person they know in their present life. That's the control. The second group was to imagine, draw, and describe themselves in their present life. So that's a control to do with the self. And then the the third group was to imagine, draw, and describe themselves at 60 years old. They tested all of their environmental attitudes before the experiment, and all three groups were about the same. And then they gave them an environmental exercise on a computer, like a a fishing simulation exercise about depleting resources, and the people who imagined themselves in the present depleted the fish the most, whereas the people who imagined themselves in the future at 60 years old behaved the most sustainably. And they were very careful about not catching too much fish. And the finding shows that imagining oneself in the present stimulates faster depletion of resources in a simulated scenario, whereas imagining oneself in the future can promote environmentally protective behavior. And you probably know that I'm really into the idea of environmental imagination, imagining future ecotopia cities, imagining the harmonious, wonderful ecological world that we'll build as a way to come up with ideas and invigorate yourself and get excited about the future. What's interesting about this study, though, is that this is not imagining a sustainable future. It's not even imagining yourself as a sustainable person in the future. It's just imagining yourself in the future. That's it. Just trying to get your head around your future self encourages this this pro-environmental behavior. And if you are still listening, my God, we got to be friends. If you truly love to nerd out on all of these nuances of environmental psychology that can inform all of our sustainability work, we are up to the last paper 
in issue 79 of the Journal of Environmental Psychology. This one is called Pride and Guilt, Predict Pro-Environmental Behavior in Meta-Analysis of Correlation and Experimental Evidence. Don't you just love these titles? I'm like, I think they need a copywriter to go through this and just clickbait, rewrite all of the titles. But this thing is interesting, which is understanding what pride is and what guilt is. When these type of papers talk about pride, they're kind of talking about like a positive feeling, like I did something ecological and don't I feel awesome? Do I get a smiley face? Do I get a badge? Pat on the back. This kind of green glow, they call it. People feel good about doing eco-friendly behaviors. And that can be a style in which you are designing a program, campaign, marketing or whatever. And then there's this other lens, which is guilt, saying this is really bad. You're doing badly. This bad thing is happening. Can you please not do it? And these are known, both of them, to be strong emotional drivers that support environmental action. And depending on how they do the study, they, they kind of come up differently. Now, this study is a meta-analysis, which is kind of interesting because that means that this study is looking at all of the studies on pride and guilt. And what they found was that anticipated pride was more strongly correlated with behavior than guilt. So that's the, aren't I awesome? I just did an eco-friendly thing. But then they say in the experimental research, it's about equal. And in some experimental research, guilt was stronger. So, and that is what they're trying to get to the heart of. And it says a rich body of empirical research has posited pride and guilt are psychological forces that affect pro-environmental behavior. Yet there is conflicting evidence about how these emotional concepts shape environmental behavior. Sometimes pride is stronger. Sometimes guilt is stronger. Sometimes they're the same. Alrighty, we are at the end of our summary of volume 79 of the Journal of Environmental Psychology. Thanks so much for listening all the way through. It was really fun for me to be able to go through all of the abstracts and scan through the research papers and help share and communicate with you all of these interesting dynamics of what shapes our environmental movement. There is a nugget of gold or something that is so fun and interesting in like every single volume. I really need to go back through historically and go through them all and be able to pick out the really fun ones. So thanks for listening. Wonderful to be able to connect with you. And I'll see you again next week.